All right, gotta get some airflow up here. All right, so it's good to see everybody here this uh, this Lord's Day. Um, it's always such a pleasure when I get the opportunity to to uh, come up here and deliver God's word. If you would, in your Bibles, open up to Isaiah 31, Isaiah chapter 31. So last week in, our, in the, the message that I gave, um, we had talked about the book of Ruth. And I had said that this was going to be kind of a two-week deal where last week's message and this week's message would go together. And, uh, and, and that is the case. You might be asking how in the world I'm going to jump from Ruth to the middle of Isaiah. If you'll hang on with me, um, we, we'll get there. Just as a reminder for, for last week, we, uh, I was trying to uh, demonstrate with God's word um, through that, that beautiful story that is the story of Ruth, the providence of God and the sovereignty of God, and, um, and how we could see on an individual level God working through the situations of people to bring about his purposes, right? We looked at that from an individual level, and we looked at that from a, an overarching level as well, what God was actually doing in his plans for redemption, right? So, um, and that's where we kind of come into to, uh, this story, but we are going to be looking at different characters. This is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in the future, and we're going to be coming into the middle of, uh, of Judah, and it's a very dark time. You know, we talked about uh, the book of Judges and how the, the book of Judges was a time of, of great um, idolatry and disobedience to God and lots of judgments that were being brought against the people of Israel. Well, here in uh, Isaiah chapter 31 is no different. So let's go ahead. Um, I'm going to explain the context surrounding this verse, but I, I want to read it together first. So if you'll just follow along with me, this is Isaiah 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and does not retract his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers of iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God and their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand, and he who helps will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and all of them will come to an end together. For thus, does, for thus says the Lord to me, as the lion or the young lion growls over his prey, against which a band of shepherds is called out, and he will not be terrified at their voice, nor disturbed at their noise. So will the Lord of hosts come down to wage war on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like flying birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will pass over and rescue it. Return to him from whom you have deeply defected, O sons of Israel. For in that day, every man will cast away his silver idols and his gold idols, which your sinful hands have made for you as sin. And the Assyrian will fall by the sword, not of man, and a sword, not of man, will devour him. So he will not escape the sword, and his young men will become forced laborers. His rock will pass away because of panic, and his princes will be terrified at the standard, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, I pray, God, that you would meet with your people here today, Lord. I pray that by your spirit, um, eyes would be open and, and, and ears, ears would be open as well, Lord, to receive uh, the truth of your word by your Holy Spirit, God. Um, have mercy on us. Have grace. Uh, show us grace, uh, move me out of the way, Lord, and let your word be proclaimed here in your house this day. 
We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we, we snapshot here into God warning the Israel or the Israelites, these, these people of Judah who are in Jerusalem to not go to the Egyptians and rely on their horses or their chariots. Now, here in verse one, it says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. Why is God, the first question that automatically comes to, comes to mind is why is God warning these people? Why would God be warning these people uh, to not go and seek help? Well, to understand what this text is saying, the context is vital. It's, it's vital to understand what's going on here. So this is all being spoken to the King Hezekiah. And he has come from a line of kings that have done much evil in the sight of the Lord, apart from his dad. His dad was actually a righteous man. Now, um, I'm sorry, his father's father was a righteous man. Um, uh, the Assyrians were uh, pressing on Jerusalem. Uh, they had invaded uh, uh, Judah and were making their way towards Jerusalem. And there was much panic. There was much panic going on in the city because they didn't feel like they were strong enough to defend themselves against the Assyrians that were that were coming on. Now, you might ask, well, why were the Assyrians uh, coming after Judah? Why were they approaching Jerusalem? And the reason why is because and we just kind of read it in the law about how God revisits the sins on the second, third and fourth generation. That was actually happening here. You see, Hezekiah, his father was a man, was a man named Ahaz. And Ahaz was a very, very wicked king. He was an idolater. He had uh, defaced the, uh, the temple and he had set up altars in the temple and every place of worship were called the high places throughout Judah. There were, there were altars that were erected to false gods, to the false gods surrounding. He worshiped the stars and the sun. He was a very, very evil man. And there was a time in Ahaz's life where the same, uh, where, where uh, um, Isaiah came up to him and told him because he was, war was being waged on him. And he said that God is going to demonstrate his protection and his love for Israel, for Judah. He said, um, if you will call on the name of the Lord, he will send these kings and he will, he will rout them. He'll depart them. You won't have to worry about them. And Ahaz, even though having heard this, and even though God did what he said he would do and routed these kings that were coming upon him, he reached out to the Assyrian king and made a covenant with him. And he sent him all of these, all of this gold and all of this silver so that maybe he would find favor in the eyes of the Assyrian. He went to the enemy of God and made a covenant with him. Well, rejoicing in his peace, Ahaz starts receiving attacks from the other side. And in that moment, instead of calling on God who routed them in the first place, he winds up calling on the king of Assyria that he had made a covenant with. And this king goes over and he wipes out the army that's coming from the other side. And now Ahaz has to pay tribute to this king of Assyria. I hope all of you guys are being able to follow with me. It's, it's dense historically, but it's so important to get to the root of all of this. So now we have Judah who is worshiping false gods, who has trusted in a pagan king to fight their battles for them and are paying tribute every single year, sending gold and silver to them as thanks for the protection that the Assyrians offered Judah. That gets us into the time frame of Hezekiah, which is where we are right here in chapter 31 of Isaiah. Now, Hezekiah, being a more righteous man, 
spent the early part of his, uh, of his kingship tearing down all of the high places that his father had erected altars to false gods in. And he decided that he wasn't going to go along with what his father did, that he wasn't going to go and pay tribute to these people anymore. And the king of Assyria, whose name is Sennacherib, and we'll be hearing that voice or we'll be hearing that name um, a lot as we go forward. He is now angry with Judah for refusing to pay tribute. So he is bringing his army to wage war on Judah and he has ransacked Judah. He's making his way towards Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judah. Okay. And um, Hezekiah is now faced with the sins of his father, which is in the form of the Assyrians, making war on he and his people. And God warns them. We originally asked the question why God would warn them to not go and seek help from Egypt. Well, in all of their brilliance, the advisors of Hezekiah say, you, you need, we need to do something. Right. Like we, we have to we have to defend ourselves against these people. They're too big for us on on their own. We need to send some people down to Egypt and maybe they we can make a covenant with them and they can send their horses and their chariots up to us so that we can defend ourselves. And in a moment of fear, Hezekiah agrees to that. He says, OK, yes, well, let's 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 do that. And that's where we begin right here. God says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and to rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Now, I want you guys to think about this. Think about what we see even in our own day. We have countries, our country, the country that we live in right now, we have alliances with many other countries that have the same kind of values, right? That same countries where we come together, and if you wage war on one, you wage war on both of them. This is not an uncommon practice, but... This nation of Israel was redeemed by God. God had sworn to be the protector and the upholder of Israel. And here they are seeking an alliance with who? With Egypt of all places. They want to seek an alliance with Egypt. Let's think about what role Egypt has played in the history of Israel. They were the original slaveholders of Israel. These were, the, these were the people when God, we, we, we read in, in Ezekiel, when, uh, when God was explaining that he passed by Israel and they were laying in their blood. They were under the care of the Egyptians when God passed by them and spread his garment over them, right? He had to free them from slavery. He picks them up and he leads them out and he does all of these wondrous works and takes them to the promised land. We know about all of these things. But these are the ones that they're seeking to go down and use their horses to defend themselves instead of going to the one true and holy God, the one who swore to protect his people. That is a horrible thing in the eyes of God. We can see why God would be so put off by this. But not only that, this is the sins. Hezekiah has agreed to something that is the sins of his father. His father did the same thing. Hezekiah spent all of his energy tearing down all of the high places so that he wouldn't be anything like his dad. But in panic, he winds up going to the Egyptians, just like Ahaz went to the Assyrians. Here we are. We see Israel repeating itself in this motion of that they are not going to trust in God. Um, they're setting up false gods on the high places, and they're going to instead depend on their enemies instead of God who has had mercy on them and has redeemed them. They forgot, they forgot. And that's where this comes in. Let's go to chapter, or let's go to uh, verse two. 
I love this part. Let's, uh, let's go to the back half of, of, uh, of verse one, and then we'll look at verse two. It says, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord, yet he also is wise and will bring disaster. This is very sarcastic language that God uses here. Because the advisors were so wise in their humanly wisdom, we're going to go out and we're going to seek the help of Egypt. Oh, well, God might be a little wise too. And God might be a little powerful to bring disaster on his enemies too. Why have you forgotten the Lord? You're going to Egypt. Here a little bit further, it says, and he does not retract his words. This is super important to the story. Because I told you Hezekiah, Hezekiah had, uh, had agreed to send people down to Egypt in order to use their horses and their chariots. But Hezekiah did something else as well that was equally as bad. Hezekiah at the same time sent out messengers to the Assyrian army that was coming into Judah. And he sent them a, a messenger saying, look, what can we do to make you not attack us? And Sennacherib told Hezekiah, he sends the messengers back and he says, yeah, I won't attack you. You send me 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold, and I will call off my army and we will no longer attack Judah. And Hezekiah did that. And you know what he did in order to get 300 talents of silver? He stripped all of the silver in the temple. He went into God's temple and stripped all of the silver from there to send to this pagan who's threatening them so that they would turn their uh, wrath aside. Okay? Super, super, super important. Well, God, being the one who appoints kings and nations and tears down kings and nations, in his sovereignty at that exact moment, he had the Philistines and the Edomites. There was a rumor of war that Sennacherib had heard that he was being attacked by Egypt and by Edom. And what he did was, in his panic, so now we have these kings, right? We have all these kings that are panicking, and this king... Sennacherib, now in his panic, decides to go back, even though he said he wouldn't attack Jerusalem, even though he said he wouldn't attack them because they gave him all of this money. He now goes to them and says, you're going to surrender right now and you're going to open up your gates because we have to fortify ourselves against this other army that's really, that wasn't even coming. It was just a rumor. And now they're denying them because of this word that was spoken by Isaiah to the king. Okay. I jumped ahead a little bit, but it's so important if we're going to interpret this, okay? So let's, let's again, let, let's uh, reread verse 2. It says, yet he is also wise, this is God, and will bring disaster, and does not retract his words like Sennacherib did, but will arise against the house of evildoers. He is going to bring punishment, and he means it. When the Lord says he's going to do it, he will do it. And against the help of the workers of iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand and he who helps will stumble and he who is helped will fall and all of them will come to an end together. God ramps up the warning. He says, if you do this, if you actually receive help from the Egyptians, you've already sent all of the silver in the, in the temple to Sennacherib, this pagan man. If you go down and you ask Egypt for help, I'm going to destroy both of you. If you do this, the warning is very, very, very stern but here is where our passage begins to take a shift because God starts to proclaim some things about himself in the form of who he is and he gives them a promise. And this is what Hezekiah heard from Isaiah that caused him to be bold 
and to actually stand up when Sennacherib came and started to threaten him, where he was able to stand strong. This is what God says of himself. Look here in verse four. It says, for thus says the Lord to me, as the lion or the young lion growls over his prey, against which a band of shepherds is called out, and he will not be terrified at their voice or disturbed at their noise. So will the Lord of hosts come to wage war on Mount Zion and on its hill. God, it's, we were at Wheatfields this last week, and, and uh, David had given a, a really good presentation to the people there about, um, about when God repeats himself. When God demonstrates, when he's speaking and he says, I am a lion or a young lion, he is making a statement that he is not just like, this is a lion with purpose. This is an ultra lion, right? Like young and hungry. And there is nothing that is going to keep him from his prey. That's what he says of the, na- of the Assyrians that are waging war against Judah. If you trust in me, I am the protector of Israel. I am the ultimate lion that will tear his prey. Nothing's going to keep me from the, the, the villagers can come out and start screaming. What lion pays attention to villagers, by the way? This is what God is trying to communicate. And he says something a lot like it in verse five. He says, like flying birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it, and he will pass over and rescue it. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever uh, um, done the, uh, the science experiment of um, repl- taking out a bird's nest, like from your backyard, you know, like in the, in the bricks when you have the, the bird's nest. Have you ever taken down a nest and seen how the birds react to that? They freak out. And at first, it's one bird, and you give it about five minutes, and it's nine And they are flying around like crazy trying to figure out what happened to their nest. And birds, when they're hovering over it, will attack you. I know you guys have all seen the videos on YouTube or whatever where people are getting attacked by birds trying to walk out of their house. And there's even some birds that will remember your face and will attack you for the weeks to come. Uh, Yeah, that that actually happens with with crows especially. That has nothing to do with any of this. I just thought that was an interesting point (laughs) to, 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 to bring up. But anyways, God likens himself to birds that are protecting its nest. You're not going to get close to the nest. God has established himself as the protector. If they would just trust him, if they would just trust him, if they would just not rely on their own intuition, their own wisdom, if they would go to the one who said he was going to protect them, he would protect the nation of Israel because he made a covenant with Israel, right? He's reminding them of this. In verse six, it says, return to him from whom you have deeply defected, O sons of Israel. For in that day, every man will cast away his silver idols and his gold idols, which your sinful hands were made for you as sin. There's an eye towards the future. If you would just trust me, there would be peace. Hasn't he always promised, didn't he always promise that to them? That this would be the place that he would, he would free them from their enemies? That they would no longer have to worry about the, the, the threats of war? They were a small people. They were not the mightiest people or the smartest people or the strongest people. God promised them peace if they would just trust him. And they won't do it. They will not do it. And he's telling them this again. That's what verse 6 is saying. And then he promises in verse 8 that the Assyrian will fall by the sword, not of man, and a sword, not of man, will devour him. So he will not escape the sword, and his young men will become forced laborers, and his rock will pass away because of panic. And his princes will be terrified at the standard, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Well, it's a good thing that we have the rest of the story. And it's, you know, a lot of this is, is covered in, in the book of, uh, of Second Kings. Um, 
let's take a quick recap. So we, now we have Sennacherib who's in his panic. We have Sennacherib who's in his panic and he comes up to Judah. He's come up to Jerusalem and he says, you're going to surrender and you're going to surrender to me now. But Hezekiah has heard this very message right here from the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. And Hezekiah says, I'm not surrendering anything to you. I'm not surrendering anything to you. So Sennacherib goes away back to his army. And his idea is tonight, throughout the night, I'm going to take this army and we're going to wage war on Jerusalem. We're going to utterly destroy it because we need to protect ourselves. We need to get our situation right so that whenever this other army that's rumored to be coming, we can defend ourselves against. And you know what happens in that story? This is what happens in that story after, after Hezekiah uh, declares that he is going to, not going to surrender anything to uh, Sennacherib. The angel of the Lord comes while, the, while, the, uh, while this army is moving in on Jerusalem. And the angel of the Lord in one night slays 185,000 Assyrians that are coming up to him. And they flee. They completely flee. There was no, there was no army. Uh, there was no gird up your loins, uh, Hezekiah. Uh, tell your men to be strong and to muster up their strength or whatever and, and, and to, to bring them out and go to war. There was none of that. God literally fought the battle for them 100% and not one single man of Judah was slain by an Assyrian man that night. God completely wiped out the entire army. And as the story goes, Sennacherib winds up fleeing back to his homeland because now half of his army is obliterated and he also has this army that's not coming that he thinks is coming from the Edomites and the Philistines, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the Egyptians and the, the king of Cush. And uh, he goes back and he's slayed by his two sons. He comes back and they're like, what have you done? And they kill Sennacherib upon his returning back to Assyria. And the battle's been won. The battle's been won by God. They, they trusted in God and they believed in him. And he fought the battle for them and they, they, they ushered in 15 years of peace. Hezekiah, starts receiving all of these goods from all the kings that, that Assyria was oppressing. They start paying tribute to Hezekiah and he refills the treasury in Israel. And he takes all of the Israel that he had stripped from the temple and he puts it back into the temple and everything is, is, goes great and he gets super sick. The Lord has mercy on him and there's 15 years of complete and utter peace in Israel. Complete and utter peace. No threats of war, no threats of anything until Hezekiah dies. He has a son named Manasseh, who was probably, he's on the Mount Rushmore of the worst kings in Judah's history, where by the, um, the exile comes and all of the Israelites are led into Babylon. You see, we get this history with Israel, don't we? Of this, God delivers, they're good for a little bit, and then they forget the Lord. And they, start to, and they start to worship other gods. You might say to me, how, how does this, how can you tie this in with what you said last week about Ruth? How, 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 how is this story, what can we glean from this story that is going to show us that the Lord carries through his promises for his people? How do we live? That's the question. How do we live in light? You know, we spend a lot of time looking at God and how he's provided redemption for us. How that we've looked into the eyes of our redeemer, right? And we, this moment where we know Christ and we've been redeemed just like Israel was from its slavery, right? We have an eye that, that, that we are God's people and that he's provided for us 
Well, how are we to live in light of that? Well, it's not how Israel's lived, right? It's not to then go and put things up, put these gods up on the high places and just, and just forget about the one who redeemed us. That's not what we do. We can look back into the scriptures. We can look back into the book of Isaiah and we can see how these kings lived and we can say, I don't know what I'm going to do, but it's not that. I'm not going to forget. And God spends a lot of time in the Old Testament reminding them, doesn't he, throughout the book of Deuteronomy? I am the Lord, your God, the one who freed you from Egypt. I don't know how many times he says that through the book of Deuteronomy. It's got to be at least 25 times where he begins his discussion with the people of Israel that I am the Lord, your God, the one who freed you from the Egyptians. Hear what I have to say. We have to be reminded of that, don't we? How easy is it in our lives where we forget about the Lord God, the one who freed us from slavery? How, how, how can we apply this going forward? We take the message of last week about that God has provided and cared for us. He will continue to do this for his people and for his church. There is no longer the, the nation of Israel. We believe as Christians that we have been brought into as spiritual Israel. We are spiritual Israel. So how is the church to live in light of this? It is that God is going to keep his promises. God is going to keep his promises and he has promised victory. As a matter of fact, Christ coming on our behalf, he has already defeated the enemy, hasn't he? But why don't we live like he's defeated the enemy? Why don't we live like he hasn't defeated the enemy already? How many among us in this church here get on the news and we see the state of the world? We see the state, the, the thing that's going on in Ukraine and all of the, the sin and the turmoil and we act like there's not a God that's already declared victory over his enemies. I know I don't do that all the time. Actually, very rarely do I get depressed and I get downcast by what I see. But we have a God that has already conquered. These battles that we see in our day or even in our own individual lives, these are not our battles. God, when he promises the victory, and he just like he promised the victory to these people right here, he handled the army during the middle of the night, not the people that were, sit, that were holed up in Jerusalem. They sat there and they waited and they trusted the Lord. Why do we think we could do different? Why do we think we could do different than that as a church? We think that the government, we think that the next president is going to be the one that, that gives the church the loophole or the, the opening that it needs to do all that it needs to do. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. China does not give any openings for the church to do what it's doing. And the body of Christ is thriving there. So why do we in this country think that it's any different? It's a, it's a good question. And I think it's one that we should all ask ourselves and one that we should all examine ourselves. Do we actually view this world as a conquered place where the kingdom of God is growing and it's building and it's like the leaven, it's like the mustard seed that's growing into the tree. It's not a mustard seed anymore, folks. The church is everywhere. It is a huge tree and it's getting bigger, by the way. But why don't we live like that? One of the greatest sins of Israel, one of the greatest sins of Israel, and, it's, and it amounts to idolatry. It does. It, it amounts to idolatry. But one of the greatest sins of Israel was independence. Throughout their entire history, it was a constant state of this, of this independence from God. I'm going to do my own thing. 
I don't want the word of the Lord. They used to kill the people that brought on the word of the Lord. Like the prophet that we're talking about right now, the prophet Isaiah was killed by Manasseh. Why? Because he brought the word of the Lord. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear what God's will was for them. But Hezekiah, when he was reminded of the Lord's protection over Israel, he trusted God. This was a whole entire situation that he couldn't control. He put his trust in God. God fought the battle and Israel was at peace. We need to understand this as God's church. We can learn from this, can't we? Well, how can we look at the church in light of that? This is the church of Jesus Christ. This isn't just, we're not, we're not simply, and I'm not, and I'm not, I'm not lessening the, the relationship that Israel had with, with God. But where we are today, we are the church of Jesus Christ. We are people that were bought with his blood. We are people that he made new. He refreshed our hearts. We shouldn't be going back to the idols and and other nations for our for our for our safety. We are spiritual Israel and Christ has conquered his enemies. We need to live in light of that. And we have no need for Egypt or their horses. We have no need for Donald Trump. We have no need for Joe Biden. We have no need for, we have no need. We have no need for them. They are not where our victory is. Our victory is with Christ. And he will see it through to the very end. There's a passage I want us to look at. Flip in your Bibles. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And this is going to be a passage that I know that a lot of you are going to be familiar with. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 19. Matthew chapter 16. Verse 15, he says, this is Jesus speaking. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, not Peter, the statement Peter gave I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. I want you to think about this story in light of this verse. Jerusalem was in a defensive position, weren't they? They needed to be defended. They shut their gates up and were waiting on the Lord to deliver them for their enemies. What Christ is saying here is not defensive. It is offensive. Who do the gates belong to in this passage here? Hell, the gates of hell. So if the gates of hell will not prevail against what? The statement that Christ, that he is Christ, the son of the living God. And that is going to spread and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, we are not in the position. The church today is not in the position of Jerusalem in this passage here in Isaiah. We're in, the roles have flipped And now the lion is no longer defending like God proclaimed himself, like I'm the lion and I'm defending. We are now attacking the gates of hell. The tables have turned, haven't they? And they will not prevail against the Lord and against his church. Now, do we live like this? Do we live like this? Who's the battering ram? The church is the battering ram. Who's the one throwing the battering ram? The lion. We don't have to look at the world today 
We don't have to look at the world today because we know our Redeemer. We know who our Redeemer is, and he has promised the same way that he promised Hezekiah that he would defend them. He promises us that we will attack the gates of hell and it will not prevail against him. So we need to live like that, don't we? But what was God's will? What was God's will for the, for the folks in, in Jerusalem? can really boil it down to two things. That the high places are cleared. That you have nothing else in the high places. There is only one that deserves to be in the high places. And that is God himself. And that's it. We tear down the high places. We keep those clear. And we trust him. And we trust him. That's what we do as the church. That's what we're supposed to do as the church. What would it say if Ruth, we were talking last week, all of, God does all of these things for her and he brings her out of Moab and he gives her, uh, 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 he, he brings Naomi and he gives her Ruth and he, 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 he makes, he brings all of these things and she finds herself at the very end that she's looking at Obed, her redeemer. What would it say if she got hungry and went back to Moab? What would that say? After all that he did for her, why do we do that? I want to, I want to turn this down to an individual level. We've talked about the church a little bit. How often is it when you're uh, struggling with something in your life, in your daily life or whatever, there's the Assyrian of your life. And I'm not trying to get to uh, uh, name it and claim it or, or, or anything like that. I'm not going in that direction. But what I'm saying is, is how many times do you face with something in your life? What, from the smallest thing to the biggest thing, regardless of how you treat it. Sometimes people treat the smallest things like the biggest things, which is crazy. But And I do the same thing. But when you're faced with something, how often is it that you go to every single other means of, of uh, reprieve from this thing and it's Egypt? How often does that happen in your life? Is there somebody sick in your family? Well, how often is, oh, the doctors are gonna be the ones. Well, yeah, they may. If God in his providence, yeah, he might use them. But why are we going to them? Well, I'm not saying not to go to the doctor. I'm not saying that. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying. Go to the doctor by, by all means. But what I'm saying is, is do you think your victory is going to be found in the doctor? Do you think your victory is going to be found in God? God cares for you in the same way that he cared for Jerusalem. He knows your struggles. He knows your sufferings. And he has provided everything that you've needed up until this point. How often is it that you're going to Egypt? Stop it. Stop it. The only reason why anyone and the only reason why these folks here would have gone to Egypt is because their high places were not cleared. Their high places weren't cleared. Their safety was their high place. That was their idol. Their comforts, that was their idol. Their self-preservation, that was set on the high places. Clear the high places. That's what Jesus is trying to tell them when he tells them that, when he tells the, the, the disciples that, that look at the birds, look at the flowers. I provide, the Father provides everything that they need. How much more does the Father love you can we stop trusting in the horses of Egypt? And can we start trusting in the Lord God that has purchased us with his son? Do not forget that he has redeemed us. We have no excuse to go back to the ways that we used to try to gratify ourselves, that we used to try to make ourselves feel better. We have the Lord God and he is the lion that is waging war against the gates of hell. And we do not have to go back to that. Keep your high places clear. Keep your high places clear. You don't belong there. I don't belong there. I don't belong 
on the high places. God belongs on the high places. Keep him there. Trust in Christ. Be encouraged when you look out in the world today. It's just another gate to go battering down to its bitter end because that's exactly what's going to happen. And whatever your eschatology is, it, you know, it's, it's fine if you hold to a premillennial view or postmillennial view. But what I see in this country, and even to this day, by the grace of God, we see a war being waged on abortion today. There is a war being waged on it, and it is losing in a lot of different areas. And that is God battering down the gates of hell. So we can trust in, this, we can trust in the Lord, not only for the world, but also for in our lives and for in our kids' lives. But teach them. That's one thing that the Israelites failed to do. They failed to teach their kids and remind their kids about who it was that redeemed them and freed them from Israel. Let us not be the same. We live in light of this. We remind our kids. We, we, we trust in the Lord. And the last thing that I want you to look at, the last thing that I want you to look at is if you are struggle or if you are completely surrounded completely surrounded by the enemy, and you think that there's absolutely no hope for you and that the world is caving in, I want you to see what, the, what Isaiah tells Hezekiah from the words of God, what he tells him what their role is supposed to be in this whole thing. And it's the same for us today. Turn to Isaiah chapter 30. It's just one chapter before. Let's look at verse 15. Isaiah 30, 15. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. Oh, wait. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel has said, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you, Israelites, these people of Judah, you were not willing if we repent from what we've put on our high places and we rest in the Lord in quietness and trust is going to be our strength. That's going to be your strength. How often do we not do that? Do you lay awake at night worrying about what tomorrow has for you, how you're going to get out of this, how you're going to do this, what, what am I going to do about this? We have a problem here, we have a problem there. Your, tr- your, your strength isn't going to be found there. Your strength is going to be found in the one that has bought you and that has redeemed you and that has promised to protect you. And this is the sovereign God that brings all things to their completion and he's going to see it through. Where does your faith lie? Do you trust in the Lord? How's your high places look? I know mine aren't the what they should be. I want all of us to think about this and to pray about this. Talk about this as a family. Think about this, really. Do you have a lot of stress, a lot of whatever? You might not have the right God in the high places. You just might not have the right God in the high places. Okay? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for this time of looking into your word and and your goodness to your people, God. And, and I, I confess to you for, for myself and for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that we, that our flesh is weak and that we are needy and that in times of great distress and in times of, of difficulty, Lord, that, that, that we don't always 
rely on on our rock and our fortress. We don't always agree with David when he says that you are that you are our rock and our fortress and our hiding place and our redeemer. We don't always think that way, Lord. I pray, God, that you would have grace, that you would show us grace, that you would show us mercy for this. That instead, Lord, of 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 your people running to to others that that can't protect, that can't defend from from these onslaughts that we get, Lord, that we would that we would discard them and that we would only seek you. And furthermore, Lord, I pray as your people that we would live in light of this, that we would keep this in our hearts and that we would preach this to ourselves every day, Lord, and that we would face the trials of today and of tomorrow and of our time in this world. And we would face it with the attitude to God that you have conquered all things through Christ by whom that you've bought us with. We thank you, Lord, on this Lord's day and we praise you for your son. We praise you for your Holy Spirit, God, that you sanctified us by. We love you and we need you and we thank you, God. Let us never be independent of you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If everybody will please stand. We will sing the doxology.